Father, we do thank you again for your word. We pray that after a day of uh, enjoying your creation and enjoying the company of each other, that you give us good concentration. We pray that you'd help us to understand the things that are written in your word and we pray that you would uh, be at work in us to shape us according to your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start off today's talk or tonight's talk by talking to you about how I think people think about God. You see, I think that thinking about God comes naturally to all human beings. Um, Most people in the world, you see, believe in God. Those who don't are in a very small minority. They may not believe, uh, and most people in the world believe certain things about God. They may not practice what they believe, but nevertheless, they certainly believe it. And the beliefs, I think, of most of the world, the beliefs about God of most of the world, could be summarised like this. So here's my potted summary of world religion. God exists. God made us. God rewards those who live who intended as he intended them to live. God rewards people who live as God intended them to live by looking after them. That is, he or she or whatever rewards them by protecting them, rescuing them, and so on. Okay, now that's a very rudimentary set of beliefs about God, but I think most people in the world, deep inside them, have a sort of set of beliefs not unlike that, depending on their conception of who or what God is. What I'm saying is that most people think about their relationship with God in the same way they think about ordinary relationships. In a real friendship, you see, I trust you and you trust me. I help you and I expect that you will help me. I'm your friend and in return I hope that you will be my friend. And I think what happens in the world is people transfer those sort of ideas to their thinking about God. So they think things like this. If we support God's cause, he will do the right thing by us. Um, If we're his friends, well, he'll be a friend to us. Uh, Now, I want to call this, uh, for the sake of a better name, the law of just returns. And I think the Bible teaches the law of just returns. I think it's probably common in many religions. And it teaches this law in a variety of places. It teaches in its... It, in its stories, I wonder if you can think about stories in the Bible somewhere that teach the law of just returns. One of the most striking ones, I think, is Daniel. Um, so we read about Daniel, don't we? And we read in the book of Daniel that Daniel is a man of God. Daniel trusts God. He's God's friend even when things get difficult. And so when things do get to the extreme of life for Daniel, because he's been loyal to God, God does the right thing by Daniel and rescues him. Now, if you didn't want a range out of uh, Daniel, you could go to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and similar sorts of things. The Bible is full of stories like that and uh, I think their meaning is clear. God loves those who love him. God rescues those who trust in him and delight in him. God is on the side of those who are his friends. Now, Let's look at some specific verses where I think this doctrine is taught. There are many verses we could go to in the Bible. Let's have a look at a few of them. Have a look at uh, a well-known psalm, Psalm 37, verses 3 to 6. 
So look it up in your Bible, Psalm 37, 3 to 6. And I want you to listen to this and see if you've heard verses like this and see what they say. So, trust in the Lord and do good. So you will live long in the, you will live in the land and in, enjoy security. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will make your vindication shine like the light and the justice of your cause like the noonday. Now there, can you see the law of just returns there? Treat God well, he will treat you well. Now, if you're good at finding books in the Bible, you might like to turn to Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. If you're not so good, you might like to just listen to me. Say Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of trouble. He protects those who take refuge in him. Can you hear the law of just return? The Lord is good, stronghold in a day of trouble. He protects those who take refuge in him. You treat God right, he will treat you right. There is the law of just returns. God is a God, these verses say, who is seeking our trust. He is a God who rewards our trust by looking after us. Now I need to say before I go into the rest of this talk that if that's all you believed about God, you would be in big trouble. If you just took the law of just returns. But I want to do this for a particular reason tonight. So the law of just returns is true, it's theologically right, but it's not the whole story about God. Okay, with that in mind... Flip back to Malachi and have, have a look at chapter 2, verse 17. And I want you to look at what God says. First, God says he is wearied by the words of his people and he imagines them, remember how this goes, responding back to him. And their response amounts to a challenge and they challenge God's justice. They say these words, How have we wearied him? And God says, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in him. So listen to that carefully. By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the eyes of the Lord and he delights in them. And God says again, and by saying, where is the God of justice? Can you hear what God's people are saying and what God is saying back to them? They, God's people are saying, God, you have reversed the law of just returns. You have forgotten about justice. You are not doing good to your people. We have built your temple. We have restarted the sacrificial system. In our view, we are good and godly. But you appear to be unimpressed and uncaring about our meagre, rather miserable existence here after the exile. You are nowhere to be found. You're absent. I think there's even possibly an extra element in this that they're saying as well. Perhaps they're not just saying, where is the God of justice? But perhaps they're also saying, where is the God of judgment? In other words, where is the God that the prophets promised? Where is the God who will judge the enemies of the people of God that have done terrible things to the people of God? Where is the God who will return to his temple and fill it just like he promised? Can you see the strength of the charges against God here? God, you have not done according to your own word. You have not fulfilled Psalm 37, the book of Proverbs, and the, the things the prophets have said. You have not 
fulfilled the law of just returns. God, you are not dealing out justice. You seem absent. You, you have not come as judge. You have not done all the things that we've been led by the prophets and the writings to expect. Now I want you to look at God's response in chapter 3, verse 1. And look at what he says. He says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, and then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in the former years. So I will come near you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Can you hear what God is saying? He is listening to their complaints and he responds to them. Now, I'll put it in modern language for you so that uh, you might just grasp what is going on. It goes something like this. They say, God, where are you and where is your justice? You are absent, you don't appear to care about acting justly and God says something along these lines. Here's my paraphrase. Oh, so you want justice, do you? Well, don't worry about justice. I will send justice. I will send my messenger of the covenant. And you want me to come to you, do you? Well, my messenger will come and prepare my way, and then the Lord himself will come. And he will deal out justice, all right. But let me warn you, a God of justice is a fearful person to stand before. You see, a God of justice is a God who purifies and refines. And purifying and refining means refining and purifying priests. It means judgment against all the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against the perjurers, against the people who defraud people of their wages. Refining and purifying means judging people who oppress widows and orphans and the fatherless. It means judgment against those who deprive aliens of justice. It means judgment against those who don't fear him. Friends, it is a very risky thing to accuse God of injustice. Very risky. You see, what we want from God is not justice, I think, but mercy. That's what we want from God. You see, justice means punishment of the guilty. And we are among the guilty. And sinners don't want justice, you see. Justice means punishment. Now, what sinners want most is mercy. It is grace. It is forgiveness. Now we're going to come back to some of the implications of this just a little later on. But I want to move on to chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. And some of you are wondering about some of those verses that I've just flown past. We will come back to them. Malachi 6, uh, 3, 6 to 12 begins with an assertion. God makes this definitive statement. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Then he goes on and explains what that means. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. 
so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. God is saying, again, let me paraphrase it for you. I think it's going something like this. Listen, you Israelites. You accuse me of not loving you, or not being faithful or loyal to you, or of not being just toward you. But the reality is, I don't change. Those things are part of my character. They have not changed. They will not change. I don't change. And because I don't change, I am committed to our relationship. And because I'm committed to that relationship, I have not destroyed you. And by the way, I should say that you haven't changed either. You see, Jacob was your ancestor, wasn't he? And you are like him and everyone who followed him. As a nation, you see, what has been your characteristic? If I don't change and I've been loyal and faithful and kind, what have you been like? Well, all through your history, your lives have been characterised by sin in every period of your history. As a nation, you have always turned away from my decrees and not kept them. However, I have not changed. I will continue to reach out to you and I continue to offer you the opportunity to repent. And if you repent, you know what I will do. I will do what I always do. I will not, I have not changed. I will restore. And then in verse 7, God goes on to make this crystal clear. Look at verse 7. He issues this summons to his people. He says, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. However, as usual, God's people have a response. They ask God, Oh, how are we to return? And God responds back again. He's told them throughout this whole discussion that they've been robbing him, offering him polluted animals in sacrifice. They've refused to listen to his law. And so he now tells them how they're to make a start. How they're to make a start in returning. They can start returning by listening to his law and obeying it. Love of God, you see, is expressed in obedience. So where might you start your obedience in this ancient setting? Well, they can start, stop robbing him and start bringing in the 10% or whatever, the tithe. They can just start bringing that in. That would be a place to start. And then in verse 10, God offers them a challenge. He says this. In the Bible, uh, I ought to say, testing God is not looked on with very much favour. Uh, it's not a very good thing to be testing God, uh, but God endorses it here. One of the few places in the Bible he endorses it, and he throws him out this challenge and he says, test me in this. And then he promises, if they do, he will throw open the floodgates of heaven for them. That is, he will pour out of his heaven so many blessings that they will not know what to do with them. He will prevent pests from devouring their crops. He will stop the vines of the fields from dropping their fruit. So, you know, you can go around and collect it. It doesn't have to get rotting on the be rotting on the ground. He will, and the surrounding nations will look upon Israel and recognise, wow, you are the objects of God's blessing. This doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. It only happens with you. They will call Israel blessed. They will call her land the delightful land. This is God's solemn word and promise. And it can be trusted. Friends, in these verses, God is simply telling, calling for his people to respond appropriately. He's saying, I don't change. I don't change. 
in past history when my, you, my people, were in deep distress? What did you do? Even though the distress was caused by your own sin, what did you do? Well, you called out desperately to me. You did it, say, in Egypt, where you groaned and cried. And what did I do? I remembered my covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob and I came down, I saw, I came down, I rescued. You see, in past history when you're in deep distress, you searched with a search for God. You were to repent by calling out to him. You were to confess sin. You were to cry out to God to remember mercy and to relent from sending judgment and to save his people. And God's pattern was uniform. It was to hear the cry to enact covenant blessings, to pour out grace and mercy. That is God's nature. Now friends, I don't have much more to do tonight, but what I want to do is uh, is to talk to you about a thing called practical atheism. So, let me put it this way. Um, Atheism, as we all know, is when you don't believe in God. Now practical atheism is when you say you do believe in God, but act as though you don't. Okay, it's an easy definition, isn't it? So practical atheism, when you say you believe in God, but act as though you don't. In other words, you place religion and God as secondary and you place other interests as primary. Well, the people of Malachi's day were practical atheists. That is, they were not atheists, they were great believers in God in one sense. They believed God in God, they built temples, they offered sacrifices according to chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. They even came and wept at God's altar. So they're very religious people. However, we can see from their words and their actions that they were really practical atheists. If they really believed in God, they would listen to his law. If they listened to his law, they would hear how he requires certain animals not to be sacrificed and others to be sacrificed. They would hear that he wanted certain tithes to be brought and they would hear that he wanted them to be faithful to him and to their, fa- to their wives and so on. They would read about the fact that priests were meant to be holy in lifestyle and leadership. But they didn't do this. Instead, they spent their time working out how they could make more money. You might not think that that's what they're doing, but that is what they're doing really, isn't it? Why else would you give your, your ram that can't do anything to God? Well, because you can keep the ram who can do something, that's going to make you more money. Oh, that's, that's just what's going on here. You give to God the dregs so you can keep the best things. They spend their time working out how they can divorce their wives rather than how they can work on their marriages. They take on foreign wives to only lead them away from the real God and toward idols. That's practical atheism, isn't it, in one sense? And for these people, God promises a a coming day. It will be a day when he himself will come and when uh, when all that is not genuine will be exposed. Practical atheists will be exposed for what they are in reality on God's coming day people who don't really know God, people who don't really serve God, people who will be the recipients of God's judgment. Now friends, in the last couple of days, three talks, I've been saying there's really much in common between us and these ancient people. Well, there's even more in our passages today. Look at Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. 
Some of you have been waiting for this little section for some time, so I thought we'd better get back there, otherwise you'll come and ask me all the questions in the question time about this. So let's have a look at this, because it's quite important to understand. Look at what it says. Malachi promises that God will send someone. First he talks about him as my messenger. Then he talks about him as the Lord whom you are seeking. Then he talks about him as the messenger of the covenant. Now, I reckon it's a bit difficult working out who all those people are and if you look up the commentaries you can find as many opinions as there are ways of putting all those words together and more. Now, Christians have generally seen, and I think this is right on track, the first messenger as being a messenger who prepares a way for the Lord. Does that make sense? So the first one is a messenger who prepares the way for the Lord. The Lord you are seeking and the messenger of the covenant are probably references to God himself. So what we're talking about is a messenger who announces that the day of the Lord is coming, the day of God's judgment is coming, the day of God's salvation, a messenger who announces God himself is coming. Now we we Christians rightly think Malachi's prophecy is primarily fulfilled in the New Testament. We rightly think that the messenger preparing the way of the Lord is ultimately fulfilled in John the Baptist. And rightly we think that the coming of the Lord refers to the coming of Jesus Christ. But friends, Jesus is coming twice. The first time he came to do what? To bear sins. He came for a way to forge a way for us to be forgiven. But the New Testament is uniform in declaring that he is coming again and this time he is coming to judge the world. He is coming to judge his people. If you want to look up some references, write them down now. Hebrews 10.30 and James 5.9. Hebrews 10.30 and James 5.9. Friends, I want to urge you tonight that in the face of the coming of God, Please do not be like the people of Malachi's day. Don't be practical atheists. A practical atheist is someone who says they believe in God and associates with God's people. They might even go to church. They might follow the lead of other Christians. They, excuse me, they might even tithe and do good works. However, underneath it all, the focus of their lives, their loves, their attention is other than on God. God matters for them only in a secondary sense. What matters in a primary sense is something else. Now what might those something else's be? Well, it might be a wife. It might be a husband. It might be the hope of one of those. It might be a family. It might be a job or a career or the fruit of a career, such as money, or wealth, or fame, or a place in the praise of people, they will not have, these things will, will have priority rather than spiritual growth. You see, practical atheists will not have as their focus the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ministry, mission, the support of such things in prayer and money will become secondary to such people. Friends, let me tell you that families, 
and careers are not wicked before God. Such things are good things from God. But when such things move up the ladder and gradually come to replace God, they've become idolatrous. They've become, become things that we have used to replace God. They have shoved God to the side or shoved him down the ladder. And the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ promises that the Lord Jesus is coming again. And when he does, he will save those who put him first. But for others the day would be a day of judgment and that it, or a day that exposes all that is not genuine. And friends, on that day practical atheists will be exposed for what they are in reality. People who have not believed in the real God, who don't really know God and who don't really serve God, who are recipients of God's judgment. Now friends, I've given you a hard time for two days, so I cannot finish on this note. So let's go on. And I want to end on the next passage. You see, the next passage that we looked on beyond those first few verses of chapter 3 tells us something wonderful beyond belief. Do you know what it tells us? It tells us that God the Lord does not change. He does not change. He is, in the words of Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and following, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This God does not change. He loves, you know when those words are are uttered, they are uttered after Israel has committed the sin of the golden calf. And do you know why God is doing that? Because he's just forgiven them. God loves, loves, loves welcoming sinners. He loves us putting him to the test by coming to him in repentance. He loves us confessing sin and acknowledging our need of him. And when we come to him and we do all of those things and we give him our whole being, he promises that he will open the floodgates of heaven for us. He will pour out upon us all the riches of blessing in Christ we, the poor in spirit, who came to God repentant and humble, will inherit all the kingdom. We who mourn because of our sinfulness will be comforted. We, the meek, shall inherit the earth. We who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. We who are pure in heart will see God. All the blessings of heaven will be ours and we'll be the most blessed people of all people in this creation and in the new heavens and the new earth to come. We will be with God, you see, and we will be with his Son, the agent of God's forgiveness, Jesus Christ, for all eternity. We will truly be God's blessed people. So friends, test God in this. If God has convicted you these last two days, test God in this. Go to him and seek him in repentance and see if he does not open the floodgates of heaven and of forgiveness in his Son yet again for you. This is our God. Jesus Christ who has died for us brings us to him. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you that your word has done for us in these days what it always does. We thank you that your word is of God, that your word is living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Thank you that nothing in all creation is hidden from your sight, that everything is uncovered and laid bare through the, before the eyes of him with whom we must, to whom we must give an account. Thank you for your word that judges us. But more than all of that, thank you, Father, for your word that brings the great news of Jesus Christ to us. Father, we thank you that you are the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And thank you that we know this in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.